It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday, the 9th of August, with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 20 years ago, the Minister for Health, Brian Cowan, described his period in health as like being in Angola because administrative landmines could detonate without warning. Since then, each of his successors have promised reform. Michal Martin, Mary Harney, Mary Coughlin, James Riley, Leo Bradker and Simon Harney. Harris have, over the last two decades, outlined their vision for transforming the service from Angola to a world-class health service. This week, there's shock at how over 500 people are on hospital trolleys, something unheard of before in the month of August, and how a million people are on hospital waiting lists. Minister Simon Harris says he has uh, the solution in Slauncha the report and recommendations made by a cross-party Oireachtas committee. Yesterday, the minister launched the plan for implementing the plan, but came under fire from opposition and medical organisations. Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, is on the line. This is a costly transformation which is envisaged, Tony. The cross-party report recommended a spend of £2.6 billion plus a capital spend, a once-off spend of 3 billion euro. How much did the Minister allocate yesterday in his announcement? Well, the concern for ourselves is that we, and it's important to state that the INMO and indeed nurses and midwives welcome uh, the Slauncha Care report when it was issued in May 2017. So it's important to state that the, the Oireachtas uh, supported uh, this report. Um, it produced it, um, but that was in May 2017. And yesterday we had a, a grand announcement again with regards to um, an implementation plan and the promise in this implementation plan that in the next couple of months that we'll have an action plan to implement it. So there was no um, additional funding announced um, yesterday with regards to the implementation of this plan. And our, our grave concern is uh, that if you want to implement this plan 
and we welcome that it's a multi-annual plan it's mm. a 10-year plan mm. that will greatly improve the situation but it's going to have to be funded and it's going to have to be funded front-ended as in mm. that they're going to have to take measures in the the budget because they didn't do anything um, tangible in the budget last year even though it was launched in May 2017 and um, there needs to be tangible funding in the budget of 2018 well, for 2019 That seems unlikely based on what the Department of Finance has said that there will be no separate funding for the implementation of Care and that the money will have to come from the regular health budget and, and the problem at the moment is that we already know that the health service is heading for a deficit of about half a billion, of about 500 million, um, an as overspend. it stands currently. An, so o- an overspend of half a billion. Uh, and we need uh, how much? Another 4 billion or something like that this year? Yeah, so th- th- there is grave concerns about the funding. I think, you know, yesterday, um, while it was good that this plan was launched, it didn't get off to a good start with Fianna Fáil announcing earlier uh, that there was a million people on waiting lists. Um, so it probably didn't get the uh, trumpet uh, call that the minister would have hoped mm. with, with regards to it. But we but, must realise mm. that there is a confidence and supply agreement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, And it's now important and indeed incumbent on Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as part of their confidence and supply agreement to put aside appropriate funding from finance for health and for Slantha Care to allow it to be implemented. Because the key problem at the minute, they have the Slantha Care report, which yep. is now over a year old. They have the bed capacity report that says we need 2,600 additional acute beds. We need about 14,000 step down or residential care beds. And we need to in- expand primary care. Um, but the reality is that there's no sign of the money to do that. And as we presently stand, so for example, and you referenced it there in your, your very good introduction, um, that you know we had over 500 people on trolleys yesterday in the month of August. That's the highest level on record for a summer month. So if you recall, Mary Harney declared 500 people on trolleys a national emergency yeah. over 10 years ago. That situation was during the winter. Yesterday we had over 500 on trolleys waiting for a hospital bed. Mm. And the problem is this, that in EDs at the minute there's over 200 vacant posts that can, nursing posts that can't be filled. In There are beds closed within the service because we don't have the nurses uh, to open those beds and other staff. Mm. Um, so the reality is that we have, a, we have a health service at the moment that's in crisis. A million people on waiting lists, over 500 people on trolleys waiting for a bed in the summer months. And we're talking about Slantacare, the bed capacity report. It's going to take massive investment in order to move this crisis forward and improve the situation. Okay, and that puts it into context, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody has spent some time waiting on a a trolley in an emergency department, this Slantacare report, as it's called, aims to stop that from happening. If somebody is waiting on an operation, one of these planned operations or elective procedures as they call them, and uh, they're waiting for the phone to ring or the letter to come and then don't know if they'll get a bed. This aims to end that uh, by making more beds available. Or for that matter, if somebody is waiting or has waited, let's say, six months on a colonoscopy only to be told that they have a cancer diagnosis and wonder why they didn't have it sooner, this report aims to stop that sort of thing from happening. Absolutely, and that's why this is a good report. It it, it does allow for a single-tier health service. It should 
with the folk. But but remember, and again, mm. I, I hate saying this, but in 2001, Michal Martin uh, launched a primary healthcare strategy, which was again a very good document that talked about moving services from the acute service into primary care or the community services, but it wasn't properly funded. So therefore, it wasn't fully rolled out and wasn't fully implemented. We have the bed capacity report out saying 2,600 additional beds are needed, but we had a bed capacity report that came out in 2007. Again, it wasn't funded and it wasn't implemented. So the key for this, and I think politically, there, there is a confidence and supply agreement. Fine Fáil and Fine Gael have an obligation to sit down with mm-hmm. finance and clearly set out a pa- plan for health okay. to allow the implementation of Slant Care and allow the implementation of the bed capacity report. And as far as we're concerned, because we've had meetings with our members in Dundalk and Drogheda in, in recent weeks, and they're clearly saying to us that they don't just view this as the responsibility of the government because of the present set up in the doll, they do see that there's responsibility on Fine Fall and Fine Gael to prioritise this area. And as far as nurses are concerned, there is a grave recruitment and retention crisis that needs to be addressed and they need to start addressing that in this budget. But was this launch yesterday not the first step in implementing the plan? The government says it's committed to implementing the plan that it was agreed on a cross-party basis at the Oireachtas Health Committee on Reforming the Service. Uh, and yesterday, uh, the minister said that this was going to happen. Uh, I think there were 116 actions or something like that in what yeah. he announced yesterday. Uh, or, or was it a, a plan to introduce an action plan to actually implement the plan itself? Yeah, it's, very, it's a bit like some now, yes, minister, but you're right. It is about, uh, we would rather, the plan was announced uh, and launched in May 2017. We've had an extremely long lag time to the launch of the implementation plan, but the implementation plan uh, doesn't set out the detail with regards to the funding about how this mm. is going to happen or the plan around that. And we understand that there will be an action plan that will come forward um, in a number of weeks or months' time. But that's why I'm saying the budget is due in October. If they want to show uh, how real they are about implementing this plan, those two parties... I hate mm. continuing to mention mm. them, but that's the reality of uh, politics the, at the minute. It's the they usual have to get politics. their heads together on this. But this is, this is a typical politics, Irish politics, when it comes to the health service. And we're going to end up at the same old road, roadblock, which is how to fund this. Uh, and it's been the same throughout this conversation. Uh, I mean, if you were serious about reforming health uh, in the way that this aspires to you, it's just copy the systems that they have in other countries countries in some of the Scandinavian countries or something like that. Uh, But here we have to decide how to get the money to do it. Uh, One train of thought is that you make everybody have private health insurance and the other train of thought is you increase taxation and the two cannot meet, can they? No, well, the, at the minute, 50% of the population have private health insurance, and that's more out of fear than anything else, because we know that the amount of money people are paying um, for their health insurance has gone up consistently. Mm. We have the private system really intertwined with the public system, where, you know, if you're a private patient, you go in and see a consultant on a private basis, it's more likely to be in a public hospital using public facilities, yeah, as in you, x-ray machines and all the rest. But you want to make that insurance that people have useless or you make everybody have private health insurance or you get rid of the private health insurance companies and pay for it through general taxation. 
And our view would be that there should be one tier that everybody gets access to health on their needs, not that, on their ability to that, pay. Everybody that, agrees that, but how, and, how, yes, how do you fund and it? And Slantacare does outline how, how to, and that will require additional funding for that to happen. Now, Roisin Shortall, who obviously was the chair of this, outlines that there is actually money that can be saved, as in if public facilities aren't being used for private care, well, that will generate savings as well to the public purse, which will help help to fund Slantha care. Mm. And that's a complex um, financial argument with regards to that. But so, you, so, so you wouldn't need private health insurance? Well, that would be that would be the ultimate aim. So then, everybody um, obviously, so, so, though, you ha- you still so, have private you still have private hospitals. Yes, but you, um, you, you and people would have a choice that if they they required uh, that they could access the private hospital rather than the public uh, public hospital. But at the minute, mm-hmm. the private and the public is very intertwined in the public system. Yeah, but you, that's you're, you're what make, has to be untangled. You're, you're, you're making private health insurance useless, uh, a waste of money. Uh, why would you pay for private health insurance to go to a private hospital when you can go to a public hospital free and get exactly the same service. Well, I, I would argue that the service you get in a public system is actually better than yeah, the private okay, system because right. for complex cases, mm. um, accident and emergencies, trauma, um, okay, and so all of those cases, that you have a better backup okay, support okay. in the public hospital than the private sector. All right, let's say that's right. So everybody agrees with you, gives up their private health insurance uh, and then goes into the public system and overwhelms the public system. And that is why Slantacare uh, and the detail of Slantacare in the full report that was launched in May 2017 mm. outlines that there is a reality and a complex process mm. to untangle uh, the private and the public mix that currently exists there. And you know what they will do? They'll make the whole health system a private system. Everybody will have to have private health insurance and this will be... Uh, well, I hope that, that that wouldn't be the case, that actually what they would focus on is a public uh, provided service and, and shift the focus to primary care, which they mm. have indicated in previous reports and in the Slantacare report, which costs significantly less than in the providing... So there are people in mm. beds at the moment who can't get out of the acute facility because there's a lack of step-down, there's a lack of home care packages, yeah. lack of step-down beds, lack of community... Like, and this is a reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. For example, um, public health nursing. For the first time ever, um, there was 150 places in the graduate programme for student public health nurses this year. The HSE wasn't able to fill all those places. Um, and that just indicates to you that it's not, att- that it's not attractive um, for people to go and study to be a public health nurse mm-hmm. and come out into that community, even though there's desperate shortages in that area. Okay, so but I, unless, I, I, unless they tackle... That's a key issue that yeah. needs to be tackled. We are losing staff from the public system at the present to the private system mm. and to overseas. And that's because, for example, in the, the, the example of pay for nurses, if you look at, uh, we compared it to eight other countries, um, the reality is that Ireland's bottom of the league table. We pay worse mm. than every other country. And we can look at Canada, USA, mm. Australia, Japan, Denmark, Sweden, New Zealand. They all pay better than Ireland. But are you so, concerned? Are you concerned that this will become a private health system in this country and that Ireland will become a gold mine for private companies that deliver health care for profit? Well, I, I do have concerns that elements of this 
um, that are attractive to the private sector may be siphoned off to the private sector and that would not be good. Our, our view is Slantecare sets out a plan and Slantecare requires that you disentangle the private system from the public system and you're allowed to have one single tier of provision. Obviously, you will still have your private hospitals, your matter private, your bonds, etc., mm-hmm. that people may pay private insurance and that will guarantee them a bed within within those services, etc. But within the public service, that people should have access to the public service on need, not on the ability to pay. And that, and the idea with regards to elective hospitals, three elective hospitals, what is a good idea because at the minute, all our hospitals are running at over 100% mm-hmm. uh, bed occupancy. And all the international data shows that if you're above 85% bed occupancy, you can't function properly as a hospital. So therefore, elective cases are being postponed on a continuous basis. So it, would, it is a good idea that mm-hmm. you allow people to have access to get these elective procedures completed and that their cases, they're not being, and this currently happens, people are rang at six o'clock in the morning to say that procedure um, that you were coming in yep. today for you were has been for. postponed yep. because of the mm. emergency, you've yep. been fasting, yep. etc. Mm. That's unacceptable. So, th- mm. so that initiative may be helpful uh, with regards to that. So right. as far as we're concerned, the key is funding. The onus is now on the confidence supply agreement for Finnefall and Fingale to sort out the funding to allow Slantecare to be introduced. But what we're clearly saying is there's a crisis, over 500 on trolleys, a mm. million on waiting lists, beds closed because a lack of nurses. And there is a key problem with the recruitment and retention of nurses within the Irish healthcare system that the Department of Health and the HSC accept. Unfortunately, the Department of Finance seem to mm. have stuck their head in the sand with regards to that reality. But it, it's time now for the Minister to be extremely strong at the Cabinet table and for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to get together and mm. come up with a plan that deals with the nurses, the, the nurses and midwives recruitment crisis that currently exists okay, in Tony. order to stabilise the health service and open more beds in the coming year. Tony, thank you indeed for joining us. As always, Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. He's let down his constituents, he's let his party down, he's let his family down, but most of all, Ian Paisley Jr. has let himself down. Jim Wells is a DUP MLA for South Down, and Jim, would you agree that that's the reason why Ian Paisley Jr. has the unwelcome pleasure of becoming the first MP under the Recall of MPs Act to face a petition which may force a by-election? Mike, this is an extremely unfortunate situation. I think you're absolutely right. I think Ian has uh, uh, indicated uh, publicly that he has let so many people down. It's a grave mistake. Um, uh, The legislation is very clear. If he's suspended for more than 10 days, which he is in this case, there is the opportunity for a by-election. Now, that requires 7,500 people living in North Antrim and on the register to sign a petition calling for that. And, of course, there's no clear indication uh, that that could happen. Mm. The one thing is absolutely certain, Mike, if he stands again, he will retain the seat. Um, that's very clear. So, to some extent, 
Um, this is a perfect victory for those who are opposed to, to Ian Junior and what he stands for. It's almost certain that there will be a by-election and almost certain that he'll win that by-election because it's just a, a tenth of registered voters who have to sign the petition right. to force the by-election uh, and undoubtedly there's enough political uh, opponents uh, but there seems to be p- opponents uh, on both sides of uh, the community in respect of forcing this by-election. The vast majority of those who are calling for it are from Sinn Féin and the nationalist community. The, the Paisley family have represented Northampton for 48 years. There's not a single family, I'm sure, in the constituency that hasn't benefited from the representation. The Paisley brand is extremely popular in Northampton. I'll be dumbfounded if Ian Paisley doesn't retain the seat, albeit with a, a reduced majority because the turnout, I think, would be lower. Mm. So this is going to cost the taxpayer up here maybe £100,000 for something that, frankly, is inevitable. But I think the important thing here is that Ian has recognised that he's made a ghastly mistake, has faced up to it and apologised profusely. I think there's a lesson there for politicians north and south that, you know, if you're going to accept any form of hospitality, you have to question its motivation and, secondly, you have to declare it. Robin Swan, uh, an Ulster Unionist, uh, says he will sign this petition. He's a, yes, and he's also the representative for North Antrim. But the Ulster Unionists vote in North Antrim's tiny. Um, you're talking about, about 7 or 8% of the entire constituency. Um, the DUP are in a very dominant position. Ian Paisley Jr. got 59% of the vote at the last Westminster election, which is normally an unassailable position. Mm. But, I mean, I don't want to belittle what has happened here. I mean, no one can stand over what, what, what he did, and including himself, and I think this is a lesson to us all, uh, and uh, to Junior in particular, you know, do not get involved in anything like this in the future. And I notice lots of MLAs and MPs are scouring through their registers just to make certain that they have indeed recorded everything they've done and gone to and accepted, because this is just not something that MPs should be getting involved in. Has Ian Paisley uh, a future in the DUP? Um, he's got a future in North Antrim as a DUP MP. There's absolutely no doubt that uh, if he continues to work as hard as he has been, that Junior uh, could have another 25 years as a Member of Parliament. Uh, within the party more broadly, no, I'd have to accept that this has damaged Ian within the party. And again, he would admit that. I mean, it is a very serious breach. And it's going to take a long time for Ian to recover uh, from this because of the, the huge amount of publicity associated with it. But equally, I'd have to say that I envy his work record and I could never aspire to be as hard a working public representative as Ian Jr. His, his work rate is legendary. And that will be what ultimately I think will save his situation because people will recognise they've got a first rate hard working MP. Mm, I uh, envy his holidays. Wouldn't mind uh, the type of holidays he, he was on. They look uh, like they were uh, very luxurious. Well, it, it depends whose version you accept. But even uh, looking what Ian says happened, yes, it was. It was extremely luxurious. And uh, it should have been declared it wasn't. Mm. And no public representative in Northern Ireland is going to defend what he did. But, Mike, we all make dreadful mistakes. I, I've made a few in my life. You have to face up to them. You have to publicly apologise, and also you need to take steps to make absolutely certain that nothing like this ever happens again. And I hope that you know Ian is considering that as he as, as he prepares for what could be a bad action. But uh, when the, the machine gets going up in North Antrim, uh, it's like Sir Enda Kenny and Mayo. It is a formidable machine, and it will actually win that bad action. Will people forgive him? 
think they'll forget but not forgive. I think people realize, like everyone else, we're fallible human beings and we make ghastly errors of judgment. And I have to say, in the Irish Republic, look how often Taoiseachs have made like, the famous Charlie Hockey envelope situation. Hmm. You know, people do make ghastly mistakes. And uh, someone said to me one day, you know, if you, Wales, if you learn from your mistakes, you'll yeah. be a genius someday. Would, would you, you like know? it? Would you liken. Uh this indiscretion to that. I mean, this was £50,000 or €55,000. Uh, that's what these holidays were valued at. Yes, but remember, compared to what's been happening in the Irish Republic, this is absolute peanuts. And as I say, I'm not seeking to justify it. Well, that's, that, all... that, that is seeking to justify it. That's saying two wrongs make a right. No, it's not. No, they're both okay, wrong. Okay, so, all right, so it's wrong. Both wrong. It's totally wrong. But what I'm saying to you is that we've watched with horror... Uh, from north, north of the border, looking at some of what's been going on in the Republic. And that just shows you that, you know, on both sides of the border, people need to clean their acts up and make absolutely certain. If somebody, if somebody offered to take you on holidays, uh, a holiday worth 50,000 or two holidays worth 50,000, would you go? Absolutely not, Mike. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I would know instantly, I would spot the fact that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Absolutely, exactly the point. As a, a major presenter to a fact-finding mission to the Seychelles or something, you would immediately realise that that's being done for a reason. It's not being done out of the goodness of their heart. Mm. And therefore, you not only do you not go, but, you know, you, you make it absolutely clear why you're not going, and publicly. Mm. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's no doubt, Mike, okay. this is utterly indefensible. I am just trying, as one who's been through the mill with the media, I'm just trying to uh, give some sort of balance in that Junior, as we call him here, is an incredibly hard-working person who certainly brought far more than £50,000 worth of benefit to North Antrim Farm. OK, well, you uh, believe uh, he'll remain on as an MP for North Antrim, representing the DUP, time will tell. Uh, Another issue that we've spoken to a lot about is uh, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution and how abortion legislation will be introduced. It's believed in this jurisdiction next year. And the minister here has said that women from the north, from Northern Ireland, will be able to access services in the Republic when the legislation is introduced. I'm sure you have concerns about that. Well, first of all, let's make it clear those services are Northern Ireland women coming down to kill their unborn child. Let's not have any euphemisms here. It's not health care, it's not procedure, it's the killing of human beings in the womb in the Irish Republic. I mean, you just call it what it is. Uh, this is dreadful news for the pro-life movement in Northern Ireland because this means instead of women having to fly to Manchester or London or Edinburgh, they can now get on a bus or a train or take a car down to, say, Drogheda or Letterkenny or wherever and to terminate the life of their unborn child. Clearly, that is going to increase the number of abortions of Northern Ireland women. They won't have that mm. impediment which will cause them to think twice and think, do I need to go, should I go ahead with this? And it, it, it is very bad news. It also means that the abortion industry... Uh, will set up in the Irish Republic and ply for business in Northern Ireland. And can we expect to see you protesting in the Republic? Uh, Well, first of all, can I say whatever the Republic wants to do is entirely an affair for the Irish Republic. A referendum has been held. I'm Mm. appalled by the result, but I have to accept that's the will of the people of Ireland. So what they do in the Republic, while it's a matter of regret, it's none of my business. But what I will be uh, trying to do is to see if we can uh, uh, encourage the health authorities in the Irish Republic and not try to try and ply their wares mm. in 
Northern Ireland and try and encourage women to come down. Uh, well, it, se- it seems like they won't just be trying to do that, but they'll also be trying to influence uh, the legislation for the women in Northern Ireland so that the services will be available there. But until such time, they'll be able to come here and they'll be welcome here. So well, how will you react to that? Well, frankly, it's none of the Irish Republic's affairs what happens in this part of the United Kingdom. It's entirely a matter for the Northern Ireland Assembly and the people of the province. But I do regret the fact that not only have they enthusiastically adopted abortion and demand in the Irish Republic, but they're now trying to, to, to purvey it elsewhere. Remember, Mike, there's 102,000 people in Northern Ireland who are alive today who wouldn't be here if we had abortion in demand, like in the rest of the United Kingdom, or okay. what's about to be introduced in, into the Irish Republic. That's the magnitude of what could happen if people can now freely move across the border and kill the life of their unborn child mm. maybe 20 miles down the road. OK, what about people in Northern Ireland who were killed by British soldiers? Should there be an amnesty for those soldiers or should they be investigated? Uh, the former head of the British Army, Edwin Bramwell, is saying it's absurd and grossly unfair that soldiers who took part in Bloody Sunday would be questioned by police now. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the events in Londonderry are, what, 45 years ago the, the, the chances of someone getting a fair trial after such a long period, I think, are minimal. Secondly, there was a, a, an incredibly expensive public inquiry carried out, cost £191 million, that's over €200 million, Euros, to get to the bottom of what happened on, on that fateful day. And really, uh, you know, at this stage, I'm not certain there's much to be gained by hounding uh, soldiers, many of whom are now in their 70s and 80s. And remember, they didn't go out that day to kill people. But the terrorists did. The terrorists go out and laid in ditches and planted bombs under cars in order to kill people. The security forces went out to defend life and limb. On occasions, very bad errors of judgment okay. were made, but the motivation was totally different. OK, I think there's a lot of people listening to us who'd argue that point and maybe upset by what you've uh, just claimed. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment and uh, perhaps we can return to that at another time. We're over time for the moment. And thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. Jim Wells, uh, DUP MLA for Southdown. David Hall, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, joins us once again to talk about uh, the permanent TSB sale of 10,700 loans to Lone Stars Start Mortgages. Uh, Good morning to you, David. Thanks uh, for joining us. Since we spoke uh, the last time, PTSB confirmed that over 1,000 of these loans were performing loans on family homes, that they were paying back their mortgages or they were in a restructuring arrangement which they were meeting Uh, but the claim was that they were in arrears on some other loan. Now you met with executives yesterday, what can you tell us today? Well yesterday's meeting in short, Michael, you know, confirms that the loan sale is proceeding Um, the deal is done Uh, you know, my deduction from yesterday is the deal is done Um, we obviously expressed concern around a number of aspects of it, they stuck to the line so it's important to explain the thousand that you mentioned because the story keeps changing. So the press release issued last week that broke um, the sale into a few categories. And in most of the categories were this thousand loans, but they were undefined. And then, uh, you know, later in the week, um, we saw a number of people coming to us who just had family homes and some had buys left that were in arrears. Um, but a few came then who only had family homes. It became a bit odd because we understood, as you announced, that each of the family homes that were being sold were connected, is the word that was used, to a buy-to-let property. And we found the number of people who have come forward who 
simply have no bite to let, so it's not possible for them to be connected. We made inquiries of that, and I, I would have tweeted extensively on it. I saw RTE followed up on Sandra Hurley, followed up on Saturday, where permittees be then confirmed that this thousand had been sold, um, and that, but again, that they were connected to buy-to-let property. So we're obviously, it's only since last Friday people got the letters, Michael. Many mm. uh, hundreds have been in touch with us. Uh, it's actually an overwhelming amount and a, and a very uh, difficult situation for them, difficult situation for ourselves and our staff because there's very little can be done at this stage. This is now a political issue firmly. Um, I'm hoping later in the week to um, give information uh, with the people's consent to prove that in fact many of the stuff we have seen is not connected to family homes where there are people who are involved in um, you know, restructures and in meeting the terms of those restructures. It seems once you're a sinner, you're always a sinner, is um, uh, PTSB's mantra. And irrespective of when you're in arrears or when you might have uh, fallen over on your arrears arrangements, you're game for mm. sale. And the last time we spoke about this, we talked about the non-performing loans, the loans uh, that have been in arrears for a long period of time, up to three and a half years, and people who haven't uh, negotiated anything with the bank since they fell into arrears. Uh, And indeed, uh, I think uh, there was a strong difference of opinion as to where truth lay on that. Uh, But is it right to say that some of these loans are not only performing, but that there's very little left to be paid off on the mortgage. Well, we've three of your listeners after I spoke to you last week, uh, Michael contacted me. Mm, and I've and, spoken to uh, one of them, yes. Yes, mm. and I'm going to give you details of two of them. Um, you know, a €400,000 buy-to-left property, and, and this, raises, this raises very serious questions. And, and just, if your listeners just think, this is a bank that's 75% old. Forget people. Forget, forget the fact that they've just thrown their customers to the wolves and haven't hasn't, hasn't had the decency to identify even the less sinners than the best sinners. Let's call it that way, right? One property worth 400,000 euros and has a 33,000 euro mortgage on it. It was restructured five years ago and is not in arrears. Connected to a family home where there's a mortgage left of 4,000 euros and a home is worth 300,000 euros. Now, just think, why would any bank, unless you were sweetening a deal for a vulture, Give away property and give away a customer who's come to the end of their term, who's been paying and engaging and doing the right thing. Why would you, in those circumstances, give potentially big profit to a vulture fund if they were to try and execute and, and throw these people out and move forward? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And the second one is, which I'm trying to double-check the paperwork this morning, is a family home, again, that is a mortgage of €56,000 and the house is worth 190000 And one of the themes I've seen, Michael, since the letters issued last week was that many of the properties that we've seen are in positive equity, where the house is worth a lot more than the loan. Mm. Um, and again, you know, the controller and auditor general might be better served having a look to find out, was this a good deal for taxpayers? Um, you know, with so many properties in positive equity and with so many trackers being sold, which is a lot of people are very, very annoyed. So I, I, I'm saddened today, to be honest, by after yesterday, that there's very little more we can do for some customers. We are pursuing mm. those customers who are standalone family homes that are in restructures longer than six months. We are engaging with them today. We will garnish those documents and paperwork and ensure 
that the truth around that cohort of people because the story keeps changing mm. from to speak. But, but why, why should people be worried they're going to be forced out of their homes? Uh, I mean, if people are meeting uh, the terms of their contract, if uh, they've a restructuring agreement in place and they're meeting uh, that uh, agreement, if they're paying their mortgage, uh, if uh, they're not in arrears for any length of time, why should they be concerned? Because surely they fall under the same financial uh, regulation that there is here. We have a financial regulator and a central bank to protect these people, do we not? So if they sold the loans and they removed a clause which is referred to as the review clause, then the question, the answer to your question will be they wouldn't have much to be concerned about once they maintained their um, existing repayment schedule. The problem is, Michael, that Permanent TSB have in their restructuring arrangements a review clause. And this is the problem that arose earlier in the year when these, um, the split mortgages were taken out of this loan sale. No one, only the loan owner, can control the review clause. The review clause is not regulated. The review clause is not governed by the central bank. The review clause is completely at the behest of, uh, in this case, start mortgages. And there, there lies the problem. But the problem is twofold when it comes to a, to a voter fund. Number one, the review clause makes control back to the voter fund. I don't like so many positive equity properties popping around, Michael, because that gives mm. any fund an interest in repossessing a property. Number two, if you're in arrears already and have a restructure, and if you're more vulnerable to possibly going back into arrears again or falling off the wagon for a short period of time, the exact same solutions are not provided for by start mortgage. And by an example of that is a split mortgage. Permanent TSB, to be fair, would never, in my view, dishonestly look at a review clause with an intention to try and do you any harm. They would not, not offer you one of their existing solutions that they have available to you. And the third part, then, is regulation. What is regulation? Yeah, well, I mean, that was what I was wondering when you were telling me all of that. Uh, I mean, why, why, why is there a, an option uh, in terms of how you treat customers? Surely that is what regulation should be about. Well, the, 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 your question answers everything. And the reason there's an option is it's not regulation. So the code of conduct and mortgage arrears that many of us and many people hear about is a voluntary code, which has been ruled on by the High Court and the Supreme Court, is a voluntary code. And it is a communication code on how to communicate with customers in arrears. It does not require, it does not require any lender. And by the way, I respectfully say that about banks as well, because one of my concerns, not just the vulture fund issue, is that banks, as they start moving loans, will remove for the future people who go into arrears options that currently exist to restructure the loans. They're not required to provide any solutions under the current regulatory regime. Now, the central bank and Brian McAvoy, the new uh, Director of Consumer Protection Centre Bank is currently reviewing the, the, the code and is very engaged in relation to reviewing the code. And I'm quietly confident that might change next year, but okay. that's not my call. So the regulation is very, very important. When someone says your protections carry, the only protection it carries is how they're going to write to you. All right. Well, they've written to at least uh, three of our listeners, as you've outlined to us uh, this morning, an important issue for them and probably for all of us. And thank you for talking about it with us on the programme this morning. David Hall, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. Now, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire is here with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Have you got much for us? Um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm busy, actually. It's been very busy on the phones this morning, but I'm going to actually start off 
off with some comments we left over from okay, yesterday yeah. mm-hmm. that came in towards the end of the programme. So I just wanted to make sure I got them out today. Okay. And um, we had Mary contacting us on the issue of road safety and driver distraction. And mm. um, she believes that very few people in this country know how to use roundabouts properly, especially those with multiple lanes. And she thinks that it would be a good idea to have part of the driving test deal specifically with the use of roundabouts because she feels those who use them in the wrong way are a real risk to mm. the motorists. Well, I suppose to some degree it, it does, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, it, it makes a part of the theory test, yeah. at least, uh, and uh, you should know how to use uh, a roundabout. And I think a lot of people do know how to use a roundabout, but I also think a lot of people are afraid yeah. uh, to use a roundabout and to use anything but the outside lane, which is extremely dangerous mm-hmm. and makes me feel very afraid, I have to well, say. Well, that's true. I mean, it especially mm. depends on the roundabout as well. Some of the bigger ones can be a bit of a free-for-all sometimes when mm. you're driving on them. So yeah, I can understand our concerns on that one. Um, and staying on that issue actually, um, Charlie in Navin contacted us as well on the issue. He believes that if you're a walker at all or you go out walking mm. around your town you'll see a huge number of motorists who are driving around using their mobile phones and that he has noticed that this number has increased in recent years. He said the problem is at a really serious stage now and it's just not good enough that people are endangering themselves and other road users. He says that using the phone while driving is tantamount to driving with a loaded weapon. Hmm. Well, it's illegal and uh, it carries a hefty penalty as well in terms of penalty points. uh, But I I think I have to agree with them. I see it all the time myself. Uh, People holding the phone, uh, whatever about using a handheld device, people are holding the phone uh, and uh, you can buy uh, the carriers for them for little or nothing for uh, a tenner or something uh, where you can go handheld. I think so. And then people have this tendency to go, well, have it on speaker. Mm -hmm. They have it on speaker and on the Mm -hmm. seat beside them and then the phone flies off the seat and then yeah. they're mm-hmm. trying to get the phone yeah. and see what it is. So yeah, people mm-hmm. do take unnecessary mm-hmm. risks, you know. Yeah. Um, and on the internet of internet, or sorry, and on the issue mm-hmm. of internet safety and internet trolls, uh, Vera contacted us to say that people who troll people online or people who cyber bully are absolute cowards who are trying to pass on their own insecurities and shortcomings um, onto others. If people get hurtful messages, Vera says it's important to rem- remember that the person sending them most likely has no life and is miserable themselves. Mm. Why else would they waste their time sitting in front of a screen trying to hurt other people? Yeah, well, I mean, that follows on from the conversation that we had with uh, Fergus O'Dowd yesterday and uh, it is uh, amazing uh, in uh, the world that we live in uh, that uh, people have uh, the ability to come so much into your life and into your personal circumstances and to say things about you, mm. whether they're true or not, to say things about people you know and care for and may be concerned about whether they're true or not uh, and uh, have little or no regard for uh, the constitutional right that we all have to a good name, as uh, the case may be. Uh, but quite often, uh, as she says, uh, they're sitting behind uh, the comfort of uh, their closed the door, uh, behind the screen, keyboard warriors, great confidence, speak mm-hmm. with a lot of certainty uh, and uh, quite often know very little. This is it. Mm. Um, and actually moving on to the papal visit, Glenn contacted us to say he um, believes it's great to see the Pope coming to Ireland. He really hopes that the pontiff brings an apology with him, though. Uh, the Catholic Church church has done a lot of good in Ireland but has also done a lot of harm and he believes that people would have more respect for the church if they were up front owned up to the mistakes of the past and apologise to those they hurt mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's been a- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot of apologies over the years and uh, I'm not sure uh, if uh, that is exactly what victims want. They want the Pope to hear what it is they're concerned about and uh, I think they want action on top of the apologies as well. Uh, Staying with the Pope, uh, Theresa contacted us in relation to Mary McAleese's recent comments about the Pope Mm. and his visit and she's saying she's very surprised at how critical... uh, Mary has been of the Pope's visit and the Catholic Church in general of late, yet she continues to call herself a Catholic. Theresa says um, Mary seems to think she has the right to tell the Church and the government what to do and they will all do her bidding. Well, she's not the President anymore, so she needs to calm down a little and stop criticising everybody. <laughs> OK, well, maybe she's right. Uh, you know, there is uh, some merit in that. Uh, an awful lot of uh, people are critical of uh, the Catholic Church who profess to be Catholics uh, and uh, will always profess uh, to be Catholics. Others say if uh, you don't like the rules of the club, join a different club. This is mm-hmm. it. This is it. And again, with the papal visit, we had a letter into the show this morning, Michael. It's okay, been a, okay. a long time since we've had a handwritten letter into the show. So thanks to the listener that took the time to make contact with us. They didn't sign it, but they asked us to, to read it out um, and get people's views on it. It just says, Dear Michael, in view of the forthcoming visit to Ireland by Pope Francis, I thought it would be a great idea if everyone attending his visit would donate two euro into collection boxes, which could be supervised along the way. I'm sure lots of people would be in a position to donate more if they wished and the money collected could be used to buy a little plot of land on which to build some small houses or chalets to house some of the homeless on the streets of our towns and cities. Mm. If the money's not used to build homes, well then it could be used to help the homeless in some other way. I'd be grateful if you would put my suggestion to your listeners so I can hear what other people think of the idea. I'm sure Pope Francis would think his visit here was very worthwhile if it helped those in need in some way. Mm, I I think it's a a fantastic idea that uh, people would help to pay for those who can't help themselves. Uh, I do have uh, one concern with the Mm -hmm. idea uh, because uh, quite often uh, with uh, charitable efforts such as that, uh, it's those who can least afford to pay who end up paying uh, people who don't have money, who give money to the charity, uh, who feel that they'd like to help others uh, because they feel that they are better off than other people and think this is a worthwhile cause. So they give something out of the little that they have. Uh, Whereas there's plenty of people who have plenty of money. This is a Mm. very, very rich country and there's other ways of raising money for the homeless and other charitable organisations. And uh, if you were to make those who can afford to pay to pay, well, then you wouldn't be asking those who don't really have it to pay. 
Yeah, that's true. I suppose our listener was just trying to oh, yeah. appeal to. No, it's a great idea. It's, yeah. a, it's a great idea. Absolutely, the- it is a great yeah. idea in theory. Mm-hmm. Whether or not mm-hmm. it would work now mm-hmm. would be another thing. But mm-hmm. um, just coming back to some of the issues we touched on this morning, um, in relation to the initial interview with Tony Fitzpatrick, Fiona was in contact, um, saying it's about time that the health sector was reformed. In fact, it's long overdue. Mm. Um, she wonders why people are so worried about where the money will come from if we can't find funding to look after the sick and vulnerable in our society. Our society, then we fail as a she says. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's because we've been failing for yeah. uh, at least 20 or 30 years uh, at this stage. And that is exactly the point that we've been promised reform. We've had promise on top of promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we have more promises. But without the funding, how can you deliver the reform? Well, Fiona has a suggestion okay. for that. She mm-hmm. is saying that any politician worth their salt would happily take a pay cut to free up money to put towards <laughs> health. And she would be interested in seeing how many of them would be willing oh to do that. Oh my God, I don't know what Fiona had for breakfast. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, one, maybe think. magic mushrooms. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, Politicians again, <laughs> say the pay cut. I don't think so. Somehow we'll yeah. write out to them mm-hmm. and suggest that. Yeah. Um, staying with the health service mm-hmm. issues, um, Tommy from Dundalk believes that until politicians have to use the public health services themselves or for their families, then we'll never see real change within the health sector. Mm-hmm. The majority of our public reps have private health insurance, so they don't see firsthand how overstretched services are and what, or, what the ordinary Joe Soap has to experience on a day-to-day basis. They don't have a real grasp of the severity of the situation. Hmm. Okay, interesting stuff. Yeah, um, Gary uh, believes that Canadians are doing the health system, um, are working their health system in the correct way. They have one of the best healthcare systems available in the world and he wonders why we, we can't just follow their um, procedures hmm. um, to a T and then everyone would be better off. Yeah, I'm not sure about the Canadian system, I just don't know, uh, but there are plenty of uh, very efficient uh, health services uh, across uh, the world uh, and I think that as we were saying earlier on with Tony Fitzpatrick we could just follow what they do uh, oh. but uh, it's a question of how do we pay for it. And relating to what Tony was saying as well, Anna said she was struck, really struck in particular by one comment he made at one point that he made in your discussion. And that was when he said that at the minute we've over 500 people in hospital trolleys across the, across the country mm. and that that's during the good weather yeah. season or the good weather time frame. She was saying if it's that bad now or if it's this bad now when the weather is decent, what in the name of God will it be like when the mm. bad weather comes yeah. in? Yeah. The services will be inundated and there's, there's no way they'll be able to cope. This government and previous governments should hang their heads in shame at the state of our services and their continuous failure to improve the situation yeah, for people. Well, as he said, a uh, number of years ago, Mary Harney, when she was the Minister for Health, 2006, if I remember correctly, uh, stand corrected if I'm wrong, uh, said it was uh, a national emergency that there were as many people on trolleys as there are this week on trolleys in hospitals in August people aren't sick because they don't have colds and flus and winter vomiting bugs and all of these other respiratory problems that you get in the winter uh, so uh, it's a time when let's say there were 500 people on trolleys in 2006 in the winter there was probably more like 50 or 100 during the summer uh, so that puts it into context perhaps. Yeah and then relating to your piece with uh, Jim Wells, uh, John rang to pick up on a point that uh, Jim Wells had made during his interview mm. when um, or Jim made the point that Ian Paisley Jr. should be credited or commended for his outstanding work ethic and um, John just wanted to ring in and say that his own work ethic would be particularly good as well if he was able to relax with such over the top expensive holidays on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> and then... Mm. Um, 
uh, again with Jim Wells, he he kind of annoyed a few people with some yeah, of the comments I'm that sure he made he did about Bloody Sunday, yeah. Well, yeah. and he also on his comments on abortion mm. as well, where okay. he's, uh, mm. Mary Rang, she was particularly critical of his comments on abortion and the comment that he made about Northern Ireland women travelling across the border to murder their under, unborn babies. And um, she said that Ireland has come out of the dark ages, and it's time that Northern Ireland did the same. She, for one, is glad that women from the north will be able to receive proper healthcare on this island without needing to get on a plane. Okay. And I'll wrap up with this one because I'm conscious yep. of the timing. Mm-hmm. We were contacted by Ailish um, on our Facebook page with a message this morning. Um, she's saying, Hi, LMFM. It's fantastic. Cedra had town looking great with flowers, etc. Um, in preparation for the flower, but the pathways are still full of rubbish and the streets look grubby and dirty. What are the council going to do to rectify this before Monday? All right. Well, maybe they'll go round and do a few brain transplants uh, and uh, we'll have uh, people who do that think differently. Thanks uh, for that, though, Ailish. And thanks, Maggie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. The slow reform of Angarda Siakana has been of concern for some time, but the pace of reform is secondary to the barriers to delivering reform, according to the fifth report on the implementation of changing policing in Ireland, which has been published by the Policing Authority. We're joined by Sinn Féin's spokesperson on justice, Dunka O'Leary. Good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us. And the Policing Authority are are talking about some very fundamental issues in terms of policing, supervision, driver training, increased staffing uh, and indeed access to appropriate vehicles. They're also talking about better working conditions, as we've been hearing this week, uh, in terms of uh, the station, which is a prefab in Dramad, uh, which is falling apart as it is and uh, will be gone in a matter of days in the event of a hard Brexit. Uh, Is there ever going to be a day in this country when we can stand over over the quality of policing as things stand as far as you're concerned this morning? Well, certainly I hope so. Uh, I believe so. But at the minute, we're uh, quite a distance away from that. Unfortunately, we have been for quite some time. Uh, we have been through a very difficult period with policing uh, in this state. Uh, obviously, two Garda commissioners departing, numerous scandals, uh, and the obvious need for reform that I think is obvious to the public, it's order, obvious to, to most ordinary members in regards to Ghana, uh, and I would hope that it's obvious to everyone in the Doyle and in government. But uh, clearly the, the pace of reform has been an ongoing issue. This is the fifth report over between uh, a little under two years. Uh, the third report identified, I think, began to show some of the indications of what's in this report because it said, uh, I suppose it's, it disputed where on guard the Shikona were stating that they were implementing uh, and that progress was being made on some of the recommendations in the Gaza Inspector's report, which is called Changing Policing in Ireland. Uh, the Policing Authority disputed that and said that some of those that had been uh, stated to be completed were not in fact completed and some of those that were progressed were not in fact progressed. Uh, this one is more serious because it not only says that the progress of implementation is far too slow, it is now saying that the entire vehicle uh, that the Garda Siakana have for for reform themselves, which is the modernisation and renewal programme, uh, is flawed, uh, is not properly focused, and at the minute is not going to deliver the kind of fundamental reform uh, that changing policing in Ireland envisioned. Uh, and 
you know, that's quite worrying. Mm. And I think obviously the policing authority, generally speaking, are restrained and they're careful in their language. But in this instance, I think they are sounding the alarm. And it raises a concern that those in the Gardaí who are tasked with leading reform are either not able or not fit to carry out these reforms or they're not willing. And the need for reform goes back uh, to the penalty points scandal and indeed Alan Shatter. But uh, since this conversation began, we've lost not just two commissioners, but two ministers and indeed a secretary general. We've an incoming guard commissioner, Drew Harris, uh, former deputy chief of the PSNI. And you're saying that you're willing to work with Drew Harris if he is the hope in delivering reform uh, for the force. Uh, But why is Sinn Féin willing to work with Drew Harris here if you're not willing to work with him in Northern Ireland? I don't believe we were unwilling to work with him in Northern Ireland. Wasn't uh, Katrina Rowan's decision to withdraw from the policing board uh, to do with Drew Harris? It was to do with the process that was put in place uh, and it was without prejudice to either Drew Harris or anyone else who was taking part in that process and ultimately uh, we engaged critically with him in his role in the PSNI through our representatives on the policing board uh, uh, as we worked with other uh, senior PSNI officers. Uh, so Sinn Féin would have been satisfied to work with Drew Harris uh, on the policing board in the north? Sinn Féin did work with Drew Harris and many other PSNI uh, officers through the policing board. We engaged critically, we held them to account uh, we supported good work where it was happening and we were critical of bad work where it wasn't happening uh, or where, where bad work was taking place or where there was pleasing problems. Uh, but absolutely, we, we engaged constructively and we worked, yes. Uh, do you have confidence in Drew Harris or, or would you be concerned of uh, sectarian policing coming with his uh, appointment as commissioner? Well, I think concerns obviously have been raised by victims groups and in relation to some intelligence issues. I think it's important that Drew Harris... Well, Padre Tobin has raised concerns uh, about sectarian policing. Yes, well, like, I mean, clearly, like, I mean, it's important that Drew Harris demonstrate that uh, the culture that existed in the RUC, that he is not part of that culture, that Mm. he is above that culture. I think he needs to make a statement on that. I think he needs to address the concerns that have been raised, and I think government needs to address. All right, well, it's not just the RUC, though, is it? It's the PSNI as well. Uh, do you be concerned uh, that Drew Harris uh, has uh, been party to political policing? Well, like, I mean, obviously the PSNI is not the same animal as the RUC, and that's one of the most significant achievements of Sinn Féin in uh, the many negotiations over years and years. Is, and, it's, and it's an approach that we're keen to replicate and work on mm. uh, in the South, is to try and deliver radical policing change. Uh, that There has been enormous change. There is now quite a considerable uh, machinery of accountability uh, for the PSNI. Certainly mm. there are still difficulties, uh, but there's no comparison to the situation that exists in the RIC. And we continue to pursue that. We okay, so when, 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 when Jerry Adams... An equal balance in terms of policing recruitment, uh, in terms of proper accountability, and in terms of local control so far as possible, or local accountability, uh, more properly, of policing operations in the north. So when Jerry Adams was uh, arrested, held and questioned in relation to the killing of Jim McConville in 1972 uh, on the direction of Drew Harris, you don't believe that was political policing? Well, like, I mean, I think, Michael, we, we came on to discuss the policing authority report, um, so, like, I, mean, I think we should come back to address that, but 
yes, like I mean, certainly the timing of that uh, arrest was was uh, was I suppose quite controversial uh, and was criticised at the time. But in any event, we are uh, in a situation now where uh, the obviously um, Drew Harris has been appointed to this position. We have. We had no part in that process. It was an independent appointments process uh, through the policing authority. Uh, and now that he is in position, uh, we will work constructively. We will hold him to account, just as we held to account the previous two uh, Garda commissioners. Uh, and uh, and we will continue to work with Garda Shiokano, mm. where they are doing the correct thing. And we will continue to hold them to account. You'll have to forgive me. Uh, I, I thought they were one in the same thing. Uh, if that's not correct, uh, I do uh, apologise. But I would have thought that if you felt the arrest of Jerry Adams was political policing uh, and that that was directed by Drew Harris, you would have concern about Drew Harris's ability to reform on Garda Shikana. Well, like, I mean, obviously the PSNI is more than one individual and any decision that would have been taken would have involved uh, any number of people. Uh, but I believe, it was, the, I believe it was the decision of Drew Harris and that Drew Harris uh, ordered the arrest. That Jerry Adams could have been brought in for questioning and said he was arrested and held uh, and questioned. Uh, and the theory is, is that Drew Harris did this because uh, he holds a grudge because of how his father, Alwyn, was killed by the IRA in 1989. I'm, I'm not interested in theories, really, Michael, but... Um, well, that's a Sinn Féin that, theory, isn't it? I'm not putting out any theories, and I'm not sure that Sinn Féin have put out any theories or, or anything like that. Well, at the time Sinn Féin said there were dark forces within the police force of Northern Ireland, namely Drew Harris. I don't believe there was any namely there at all, Michael. Uh, but yes, there was concerns in relation, and there still is serious concerns in relation to uh, the PSNI and, and some of the practices that have happened as well as the significant uh, progress that has been made. There are still many issues to address uh, and we are keen to address them and we continue to work through uh, the, the policing board with our representatives or, or we will continue to work through that when uh, it is re-established and we will continue through our elected representatives uh, to hold the PSNI to account to see that there's further progress that can be made. Certainly there are uh, concerns that elements of the PSNI have mm. not uh, bought in fully to, to the reform agenda that that exists and have not uh, bought into the new mode of policing uh, that we have sought to deliver. But uh, uh, that is a job that we continue to pursue. I think so, we've made a lot of progress on so that. So when Martin but, uh, McGuinness spoke of an embittered rump of the old RUC, at the time of the arrest of Jerry Adams, you don't believe he was speaking about Drew Harris. And when Katrina Ruan said that the process may have been compromised, which resulted in her resigning from the policing board, you don't believe that was due to Drew Harris's appointment? Well, I think quite clearly I've addressed the issue there in relation to the, to the uh, process of appointment. That relates entirely to process. Uh, it was not specific to uh, Mr. Harris. It was not related to any of the other officers who were part of that recruitment process. Uh, it was an issue with process, and uh, the Sinn Féin members of the policing board stood over that, and we continued to stand over that. The process was compromised, uh, and uh, that's no reflection on anyone that took a position afterwards. OK, but you remain concerned uh, that Jerry Adams was arrested for political reasons. 
Well, like, I mean, I think that obviously that's a number of years ago and uh, anyone who has... Does it not matter? In relation to, yeah, of course it matters, yeah. But anyone who has information in relation to uh, that particular... Uh, the, the, that particular issue. That's uh, the oddest response I've ever heard from a, a, a front bench spokesperson uh, speaking about their oh party party leader being arrested by the incoming head of the police force in this country. And you say it's a, ah, shit, that was a few years ago. That's, that's a, not what that's I'm saying a, at all. Obviously, obviously, it was a very significant development, and at the time, certainly, uh, it was in the context of an election, and the timing was certainly very suspicious uh, and very concerning. Uh, I very much believe that is something that uh, I think caused a great deal of concern in relation to the timing. However, uh, obviously, uh, that matter is now, like, I mean, there was no... There was no progress beyond that. Okay, so when you say you will hold, when you say you'll hold Drew Harris to account, uh, will you be asking him into the Oireachtas Justice Committee to explain why Jerry Adams was arrested and if it was to uh, affect the outcome of an election? We will uh, be asking Drew Harris uh, many questions when, and it certainly it is our intention to ensure that he comes into uh, to the. Is that one uh, of the questions Oireachtas? you'll be asking him though? I will consider at that stage, obviously, there's a number, there's quite some time before the, the dial resumes. Uh, there are many questions I would like to ask him, many of the concerns that have been raised will you ask in relation her- to victims, uh, groups in relation to okay. uh, the manner he conducts himself in relation to inquests, uh, in relation to intelligence issues, and so on. Um, will you ask Drew Harris I, who ordered the killing of Tom Oliver? Um, I, like, I mean, I'm the issue in relation to that, like, I mean, if there's issues in relation to Tom Oliver, then certainly we will consider those. Well, there are, there are issues in relation to Tom yeah, Oliver because uh, yeah. Drew Harris wrote down the name of who directed, who he believes directed the killing of Tom Oliver uh, and gave it to uh, Justice Smithick at the Smithick Tribunal. Uh, now, this is the chief police officer in this jurisdiction who believes, knows the person who directed the killing of Tom Oliver, uh, his family listening to us this morning, uh, who would like to see justice for what they believe was an unlawful killing and murder. Uh, Would you ask Drew Harris to follow up on the information that he has and to uh, investigate the claims that he made at the Smithick Tribunal? Well, obviously, any information that he has that's relevant to any investigation, then he should uh, he should follow up on that. Certainly, that's obviously the case, uh, and every family, including the family of Tom Oliver, uh, deserve uh, truth and justice. Would you like to see arrests made in relation to the killing of Tom Oliver? Any uh, outstanding offences that uh, took place, any information that people have that can lead to arrests. That information should be used, and if if the information exists for arrests to be made, then those arrests should be made. Uh, do you believe that's uh, the case in the case of Tom Oliver specifically? Because uh, the argument uh, over many years is that Tom Oliver was uh, a, a guard informant. Uh, he gave information about the IRA and uh, was tried and executed as a, a result of that. Sorry, excuse me, could you repeat that? Uh, do you believe that Tom Oliver's killing was illegal, that it was a, a murder and that a murder investigation uh, should lead to the arrests specifically in relation to Tom Oliver? Well, like I mean, as I say, I think if you address that issue, if there's information out there that people have in relation to 
any killing, then obviously that should... No, not, be, not any uh, killing, go- specifically Tom Oliver, or should Tom Oliver's killing go uninvestigated because he was uh, informing on the IRA? No one's never said, and nobody has ever said that any killing should go uninvestigated. Uh, any investigations uh, that, uh, for any offences, should take place, absolutely, uh, and those uh, investigations should be part of a process, and then those processes should be followed to their conclusion. And do you know who Drew Harris believes ordered the killing of Tom Oliver? No, I don't. Have you any idea? No. But, and would it matter? Should that person be called in for questioning by the commissioner? Well, like, I'm not sure that it should necessarily come from the commissioner, that it should be that person being interviewed or whatever, but uh, through the normal policing processes, if there is an investigation that has to take place, then yes, if people have information, they should uh, provide that information and then an investigation should take place uh, and whatever uh, appropriate actions, including arrests, need to take place in front of that, should, that should happen. All right, and do you think that would be helpful to the peace process? Well, like, I mean, obviously the most important thing is that uh, a that families get truth and justice. Uh, however, uh, you know, like, I mean, I think it's important that uh, obviously everyone has a right to, uh, as I say, truth and justice. Everyone has a right that uh, any crime or any offence or anything like that, that, uh, that that should be investigated properly and that that should be followed to its full conclusion. But the best way of dealing with all these issues is through uh, a full truth and reconciliation process uh, that uh, encompasses all uh, loss of life and all issues uh, that arose during the conflict. Uh, There was significant fault on all sides and I think everyone is entitled to truth and justice and I think that the only way that that would be properly achieved is not through some piecemeal approach uh, but through a comprehensive process uh, that takes in uh, all issues. Okay, maybe so. Uh, we leave there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Dunka O'Leary is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on justice. The price of alcohol in this country is very cheap, according to Alcohol Action Ireland. You might think that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that you can kill yourself for less than uh, ten euro a week. Eight forty nine for men, five forty nine for women. And Eunan McKinney, head of communications and advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland, joins us. Eunan, is that overstating it a little bit? Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, well, no, I mean, the context is that if you if you were to consume 20 standard drinks over a uh, four-hour period, you know, as an average-sized male or an average-sized female, you know, you, you are in danger of, of, of um, falling into alcohol poisoning and, and potentially fatal, fatal consequences from the consumption of alcohol. Right, and 20 standard units uh, would be the equivalent of, what, 10 pints? No. Uh, well, yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. So, like, in the context of the server that we've identified, you can, you know, you can see that a standard drink, we'd say a beer or a standard drink inside, or can be actually purchased for in around 50 cent. Uh, so, in that in that sense, you know, sadly, the the, the headline that, 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 that we have in relation to what Bobby Smith has said to, in relation to the survey is that, you know, for a tenor, you, could, you can actually do yourself some very serious damage, yeah. Mm. Uh, which is based on the price of alcohol here and the assumption that people would drink lots of it. Uh, but we are one of the most, we actually, we are the most expensive country in Europe for alcohol, aren't we? 
So I believe one of the well, well, one of them, anyways. I mean, I think the Swedes, the Finns, the the the, the British are in or around the same sort of areas. I think the Swedes and the Finns are probably higher than us in in, well, the, in the context of that. Well, as I understand it, the last Eurostat report put us at the highest, the most expensive country in Europe for alcohol, seventy five percent above the EU average. Yeah, but what we're demonstrating clearly, Mike, in relation to today's survey is that the actual affordability of alcohol in the Irish market is exceptionally cheap and the context is that there's, a, there's, a, there's two worlds in relation to the availability of alcohol. There's an on-trade and there's an off-trade and increasingly the Irish population are consuming their alcohol with purchases that are made in the off-trade, which is an indication of why the market is now worth $3.74 billion. Um, and in that in that sense, we know that for as little as, as fifty cents, um, you can you can you can purchase a, a standard drink. And then, as I outlined, you know, if one wants to adhere to the advice in relation to low risk consumption of alcohol, that you know you 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 can actually spend as little as eight forty nine as a man or five forty nine as a woman to mm. get that weekly uh, to get as far as that weekly guideline or that weekly threshold. Um, so it is exceptionally affordable. And what we're trying to demonstrate with the market review is to just try and understand the affordability of alcohol. And I take your point that it, yeah. you know, in the on-trade and clearly in restaurants where uh, bars and everything and clubs where there's a lot more costs and a lot more um, attributable costs involved, um, there, is, there is a great disparity in the, in, in the, in the pricing of alcohol. But the, you know, the CSO data would indicate that over 50% of us are now purchasing our alcohol in the off-trade. Mm. Uh, but it, it's not the price of the alcohol, uh, surely we'd God. It's how much of it we drink. Uh, and uh, if it was just to do with the price, uh, would they be falling off like full eyes in places like Bulgaria? Yeah, but I think what we're trying to do, yeah, that's very true. And of course, there's a different, there's a different cultural context, perhaps within the country like Bulgaria. And what we're, what, what the, the public health alcohol bill is endeavouring to do is to establish a whole range of measures that would, would essentially curb that culture a little bit. And one of those aspects, one of those instruments within the bill, is price. And and it's not, it's not the silver bullet. There is no mm. silver bullet. The issue here is that you have to bring about a whole set of measures. And by implementing them efficiently and coherently over a period of time, that you will seek to readjust a cultural expression around alcohol, that harmful relationship that we have with alcohol. And that in doing that, then we get to a point where we start to come back to appreciated levels that are much more acceptable in mm. relation to the consumption of alcohol. But which comes first, I think, is the discussion. Well, I think, rag, I think the issue you know? is that we, we, mm. we, do need to, we do need to implement the public mm. health alcohol bill. I mean, you and I have spoken about mm. this in the mm-hmm. past. And we're still a thousand days into this debate now, and we still haven't passed it. And, you know, notwithstanding that there has been some mm. difficulties for, um, you know, at a European level, um, these, these hurdles are now passed, and we should move on now to get this piece of legislation passed and implement all the measures involved. And what we're making the point is, again, within the context of the, uh, the display of alcohol and the availability of alcohol in stores, especially in these, in these supermarkets and convenience stores and small shops, that the availability of alcohol in these, the, the easy availability of alcohol in these stores is a significant factor in relation to the continuous availability mm. of uh, 
a marketing technique that allows people to just be intrusively. But don't they have the same techniques in Bulgaria or Romania or Hungary where it's no, a probably, fraction of the cost? No, they, they, they don't really because there's, a, there, well, there's a, a, a different different relationship with alcohol in those countries, but also there are other measures in, in relation to where alcohol is actually sold, when it is sold, how it is sold. What we have is a particularly open liberal market in relation to the event. I know a few people who were on holidays in Bulgaria and uh, it didn't seem as though it was much different there. They had off licenses, they had supermarkets, they had pubs and clubs and restaurants that all sold alcohol. Yeah, they probably uh, do, but they probably will find that there's, there, is, there is a much stricter regime in relation to the availability of it and when it is availed I and mean, how it is well, I don't think they were complaining I don't think you'll find that they were tripping over it as they went in to buy a pint of milk or a packet of nappies, you know. So in that context, I think there's a different, there's definitely a different approach. Well, they were able to buy it very easily for a fraction of the cost. Well, they may be able to buy it for a fraction of the cost, but then there's those different cultural references that are in place that enables them to consume alcohol much later. I mean, I know in the context mm. of Bulgaria, for example, it's mm. way below the European average. Mm. But it's not because of the price, is it? No, it's not exclusively because of the price. But the price It's is not because factor. of the price at all. It's the cheapest place in Europe to buy alcohol. No. And they drink less. We're the most expensive and we drink most. We're the most expensive in a particular context if you go into a bar, but clearly, as we're demonstrating, we are not the most expensive if you decide to purchase your alcohol in, in the off-trade, which you can do for as little as 50 cent. Mm. That's the point. And you can do it, like as we say, across the board, If you, you can buy cider for 49 cents, you can buy beer for 50 cents, you can buy gin for six cent, 60 cents, vodka for 61 cents, whiskey for 73 cents, etc. Like these are exceptionally low costs in relation to the availability of alcohol and okay. the affordability of alcohol. And they should be standardised at what, uh, two euro a can? Well, in the context of, I mean, the, the context of the bill in the public health outcome, the minimum unit pricing would would target the those products that are currently available on the market that are the strongest, cheapest alcohol. Mm. Um, and undoubtedly, those products would be more expensive. So, you know, if you're buying some of those high volume, uh, alcohol volume beers or mm. ciders that are 6 or 5%, you're going to find that those products are going to get more expensive. So instead of 50 cent, it would be 2 euro a can, is it? Well, in the context of the cheapest lager that was available on the market, there the, was a four-pack that was available for mm. 2.64, um, and that would be 5.20. Okay. Yeah. All right, interesting stuff. Thank you indeed uh, for uh, explaining all of that to us and for joining us uh, this morning. Eunan McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. This week, Mocker and Affirma launches its annual Know Your Neighbour campaign. James Healy is uh, the national president of Mocker and Affirma and he's on the line. James says this is uh, the 13th Know Your Neighbour campaign. I suppose 13 years ago, a lot of people didn't know many of uh, their neighbours has the situation got better or worse in the interim? I think, uh, Michael, uh, migration both within the, the country and out of it and into it um, has continued apace uh, since then. So every every year you might get to know your neighbours, but there's always, there's always new ones to, to meet the year after. And I think uh, Know Your Neighbour continues to, to maintain its importance and uh, maintain a, 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 a a high importance in, in rural communities where people are, are continuing to move in but also mm. move out and I suppose we want to and I think maintaining that sense of community spirit is is critical in in maintaining a, 
a vibrant and an active community. And uh, I suppose you highlight the value of knowing your neighbour by highlighting some of the challenges that people in rural Ireland face and how uh, knowing your neighbour and acting as a community can combat some of uh, those challenges. And uh, in line with uh, this year's campaign, you're releasing a survey uh, which is highlighting some of uh, the bigger challenges uh, that people face uh, and rural crime and rural isolation top the list. They certainly do. And I don't think, to be fair to anybody, that it's a huge surprise um, given the coverage that uh, the, the rural crime wave that has gotten over the last probably two years, if not more, and rural isolation has been highlighted as a particular problem for for many years now. And I think uh, that they can probably be... Uh, the fear that is created out of rural crime can only be heightened by the rural isolation that, that is happening. And as our rural communities are depopulated by young people having to leave to go to college and then to get jobs. Um, there's less and less people living in amongst our, our rural people, which creates that sense of um, isolation from, mm. from the rest of your community. And can, that, I suppose, leaves our older people in particular more vulnerable to rural crime, but also um, takes away that comfort blanket that would have always been there for them, where their na- they could see their neighbours like probably... 100 yards down the road and that they knew that there was some someone there for them whereas that's not always the case now and I think mm. oh, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, Your neighbour looking out for your light being on uh, and if it's not on perhaps uh, they'd raise the alarm as uh, the case may be uh, Are more people feeling isolated? I think so and it's it's probably because as that neighbour moves farther and farther away uh, and probably because people don't automatically know each other and as new people move into an area, um, I suppose particularly if you take commuter towns and those town, towns and villages quite near our, our, our cities, those people can often be working in that, in, we'll say at home if you take mm-hmm. Cork City, people are working in Cork City, they're coming home and they're staying at home for the night, they're, they're worn out, they're just going home, eating, going to bed, they get up the next day and they they go back to work. And they're not partaking in their local community. They're not getting to, to know those around them. And I think for everybody's benefit, I think it is vitally important that those people are brought into the community. They're made to feel at home. And I think it can be of benefit to, to everybody um, that they have a, a social network where they live, where they you know, that they have friends, that they have a place to go out to socialise, but also that those around them know that there there are new people that they, that they can trust and mm. uh, can be friends with near them. Uh, because this is uh, the other strand uh, to isolation. Uh, if you're isolated, you're fearful of crime because nobody has your back. Uh, but as you say, you're on your own. And I suppose that is, uh, in some ways, uh, the definition of isolation. And with that can come loneliness and even depression at times. It, it certainly can. And I think if you take farming in particular as, as a... Uh, an occupation it can be one where um you might be talking to people on the phone or you know dealing with your co-op mm. or dealing with your with your suppliers or whoever it is but you might struggle to meet uh, more than those you can count on your hand face to face 
in the course of a week and I think that's where uh, organisations like MOCRA are particularly important where they offer that opportunity for you to go out to, to meet your peers, to, mm. to socialise, to um, share your problems, to uh, keep active and I think that's where Know Your Neighbour then comes in in particular because uh, if I, if you have a, a network within your local area, it it encourages you to come out, it encourages you to come and take part and you know that we, there's people there that, that you're going to be able to relate to, that you're going to have mm. a conversation with, you can sit down and have a drink with and that it, it, it offers you that, um, that sense of comfort that, that you know, at the end, you might have you might struggle to meet people during your working week, but when you of an evening or a weekend, you know you can go out and, and that there's people there that you're going to have a, a good time. With. And I, I suppose uh, a lot of people would say that they meet uh, people and get to know their neighbour uh, in the local post office, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, with uh, the closure of uh, so many rural pubs, uh, they may not be able to go out for a drink, but they can meet up at the post office uh, at different times of the week. There's concern though. Uh, about uh, losing such services, uh, as will be the case, it seems, in 160 towns and villages across the country. There certainly is. And I think there there's an element of a catch-22 where if you have people leaving rural communities to go to urban areas to work and uh, to live, you've less people there to avail of the services that uh, the likes of the post office offer. And I think you'll see in our, our release, the, our survey told us that uh, was that almost 50% of people had said they had only been in their post office a handful of times in the last 12 months. And I think there's an element of joined-up thinking needed uh, and a bit of vision required as we go into the future because I think there's huge opportunities there for the post office where uh, we've seen other services like bank branches have been closing in our local areas for probably uh, two decades now and... Um, I certainly know that there's an opportunity for post offices to take up maybe banking services, there's lots of other services, and as online services become more and more more popular, I think there's definitely huge opportunities for the the post office to offer new services. And I think Mm -hmm. if you're keeping up with the demands of those around you, I think that you will get more customers. But also by having those vital services in local areas, you're going to persuade people that they can stay in their rural community and mm-hmm. still have everything they need. Okay, and I suppose if you want the service, uh, you're going to have to use it. Uh, but we leave it uh, for the moment on that note. And thanks uh, for joining us. James Healy, National President of Macron Affirm, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.